Please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 20 once more. Jesus is in Jerusalem in this passage, uh, probably specifically still in the temple as far as we can tell from the passage, and uh, just days before he will die. And he is teaching and answering questions of skeptics. That was what was happening uh, throughout our passage a few weeks ago. And uh, more broadly speaking, so that's kind of the narrow context, more broadly speaking, Luke is seeking to establish for his readers uh, that Jesus the Messiah fulfills God's plan by seeking and saving the lost. And praise God, he's continuing to seek and save the lost in our day, using the Word of God to pursue hearts, even those hearts that are hardened, that want nothing to do with the Lord. But we thank, you, we thank the Lord for his faithfulness in pursuing sinners. We did that through this book. And uh, today we're reading chapter 20, verses 27 through 44. I'll be reading this passage aloud. You're welcome to follow along on the printed page before you. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? A few weeks ago, I was in the local Sam's Club, uh, had a decent shopping list there, and was walking through on a busy, cold Saturday morning, and uh, the place was packed, the parking lot was packed, and it was also packed with people trying to get me to spend extra money. And so there were these guys, right as you enter the door, if you go in there, I've told you this before, they're like the sharks, and you just have to like not look at them. And I basically like stiff-armed them, and they were kind of like okay, have a nice day. Like they, they couldn't even get their first words of their sales pitch out. But that was just the first line, right? You have to keep going. The second line of defense was further back toward the freezer section. And these guys were trying to sell these water machines. And I'm sure they're lovely water machines. And I'm sure the water tastes delicious. But I was not interested. And I was hearing them make this sales pitch over and over again to everybody walking through this particular part of the store. So many... Uh, times over that by the time I got over to them, I knew what questions they were going to ask me and what they were going to try to convince me to do and what they wanted me to do that very day. And I also knew that several of the, the ingredients that were on my list that Clarissa had given me were right behind them. So I 
couldn't avoid them, you know, if I were going to be faithful to my wife and get everything she'd asked me to get. So I walked over, and they looked me in the eye, and I said, guys, I just have to tell you, I'm not going to buy your water. But I appreciate the enthusiasm with which you're trying to sell your water. And this guy goes, you're a secret shopper, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm not. He's like, but if you were, you'd tell me, right? And I said, I'm a pastor of a church. I'm not going to lie to you. And he goes, really? Can you prove it? Do you have a card? I was like, yes, I have a card. And I pulled it out and I said, and you're welcome to our worship service tomorrow at 1030. Now, he's not here. He hasn't been here. He's probably selling water right now. But he was a very pleasant guy. We had a nice kind of jovial conversation one with another. And, um, but I told him, you know, just straight up, I'm not going to buy your water. And it's not because you're a, a nice guy, not a nice guy. It's not because you're not doing a good job. It's just, I'm not going to do it. And, he, you know, he respected that. And we just talked about sports and things like that for a few minutes and encouraged him to come visit our church. But I was not buying what he was selling. The questions that Jesus is getting asked over and over again in the passage we're reading were from people who had the kind of mentality that I had going into that store. Whatever you're selling, Jesus, I'm not buying it. And Jesus was trying to persuade them to open their minds, to look at him differently than the way that we might look at a salesman at Sam's Club or many other places like that. What Luke showed us in our last passage, what we looked at a few weeks ago, was that all authority rightfully belongs to Jesus. And in today's passage, he shows us that Jesus demonstrates his authority by the way he masterfully interprets Scripture. All right, So he's building on what we saw a couple weeks ago. If I could do a do-over, I probably would preach this section with that section last, you know, two weeks ago, even though it would have made a very long sermon, or at least a very long passage. But what I'm saying is that this passage is building on that one by demonstrating that the reason or the way Jesus demonstrated his authority was by the way he masterfully interprets Scripture. And this passage divides neatly, perhaps you saw this, into two parts. One where people are asking him a question and then secondly where he's asking a group of people a question. And we know in, uh, from the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew, so if you're new to the Bible, let me just explain this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are super similar. We often call them the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic just being that they're very similar to each other. That's the simplest way to put that. And so, but there are unique details to all three accounts. Luke has many unique passages that none of the other gospel writers include, like the story of Zacchaeus we saw a month or so ago, like the story of the Good Samaritan, and many others uh, are unique to Luke. There's one little detail that's interesting in Matthew that Mark and Luke don't pick up on, and it's just between these two questions, the question that the Sadducees asked Jesus and the question that he asked an audience and what we find out is the question that Jesus asks is, a, is a, a question to the Pharisees, not to the Sadducees. So it's actually a different audience. But the Pharisees kind of teamed up with Jesus for a few minutes because they really disliked the Sadducees. And we'll explain who the Sadducees are in a minute. But it was almost like, oh, the enemy of my friend is my friend, right? Or, or how do they say that? The, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? And so they were kind of like, hey, Jesus doesn't like the Sadducees either now, so we're going to team up with Jesus for a second. And Jesus is like, let me ask you a question. And so in the Matthew account, he asked the Pharisees, whose son is the Messiah, is essentially what he asked. And they say, oh, the son of David. And then we pick up where we are here, where Jesus says, 
how can they say that the Christ is David's son? So that's the second part of our passage. I'm just saying that there are these two distinct sections here. Jesus is talking to various groups of religious leaders who were in the temple there uh, just days before Jesus died. And these people, both of these groups actually, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, were in their own way doubting Jesus' authority, wondering, can we you know, buy what this guy is selling, so to speak? And so Jesus responds by using two Old Testament passages, one specifically for each group, uh, in ways that his audience had not considered. He was asking them questions they hadn't asked themselves before, but still very good questions. So in verses 27 through 40, this part where the Sadducees asked Jesus a question, Jesus rightly interprets Scripture about the resurrection. Jesus rightly interprets Scripture about the resurrection. And by that, we're not talking about Jesus' resurrection alone. We're talking about, is there another life? Do people, when they die, just stop existing? Or is there a second life? And what we find out in the very first sentence of this passage in verse 27 is that the people who were asking Jesus this question didn't believe there was an afterlife. Okay? They, they assumed that when you die, you turn to dust, and that's the end of you. That's the end of your existence. So it says that there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. So Luke is telling you everything you need to know about them in one sentence, even though there's a lot more we could talk about them. And I will tell you more about them in a few minutes here. But in other words, Luke is setting us up to realize that whatever question they're going to ask about the resurrection isn't a genuine question. And so when when they ask him, We've got this kind of conundrum we'd want you to try and solve for us. They're not doing it in an honest way. It's not like they're coming to him with a genuinely open mind. And Jesus probably knew that just based on the fact that these people were Sadducees, but also uh, just the the way that that the Lord uh, gave him understanding in various circumstances through the the Holy Spirit. Now, what Jesus does to this question that they ask about this, this story that Moses tells is helps them see that Moses is not uh, that, that the resurrection is not a new doctrine. It's not like the Pharisees created the, the res- doctrine of the resurrection. This goes back all the way to Moses. Now, one interesting detail you need to know about the Sadducees that you don't get from this text itself is that the Sadducees, as a group, which is a pretty narrow, kind of aristocratic group of people, they did not believe that any part of the Bible was truly the Word of God except for the first five books. Okay, so uh, (laughs) Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What we call the Pentateuch, what the Old Testament, um, we would just call it the, the Torah. That's what they thought was the Bible. Everything else they crossed out. So when they tell this story about Moses, notice how Jesus responds. He tells a story about Moses. In other words, he's playing on their level playing field, even though you know, he's willing to go to other places as well. He's willing to just kind of enter into their fray a little bit. Now, the Sadducees are not mentioned. As you read about them here in verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees. This is the, first, this is the only time, actually, that they show up in the book of Luke. They show up a few times in Acts, which Luke also wrote. So it's not the only time he talks about them, but here in Luke it's the only time they show up. They were only talked about in the Bible about 14 times. But they're not anywhere in the Old Testament. Now, why would that be? Well, if you find in your Bible, and you don't have to do it right now, that one blank page in your Bible between Malachi and Matthew, and you get there, and it says nothing, 
That's basically what we generally understand about what happened between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. But it's what we call, so that blank page is, represents what we call the intertestamental period. So the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's about a 400-year gap. And as you can imagine, I mean, what was happening in the world in 1623? Anybody want to just kind of throw out some ideas? What we could say is, it was very different in 1623 than it is in 2023. Would you be willing to acknowledge that? And that it was really different 400 years before 1623 as well? And you just kind of keep going back. Like 400 years is a big gap of time. And we know very little about, you know, generally speaking, we know very little about what happened in those years. Well, one thing that happened in those years was the Pharisees developed as a group. And the Sadducees developed as a group. And the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament developed. We call that the Septuagint. And that's what typically even Jesus and Paul quoted from when they were quoting the Old Testament. So very significant things happened during that little intertestamental period. And if you want to know more about it, I could be happy to send you a very lengthy Word document that someone gave me in the past, one of my teachers gave me in the past. But all that to say, the Sadducees uh, probably were, as a group, a couple hundred years old at this point. But a couple of their unique elements about them. One is they don't believe there's an afterlife. Two is they don't believe in angels. They don't believe you have a soul, which goes on with the fact that they don't believe that there's a resurrection or an afterlife. Uh, they, they insisted that only the Pentateuch, the first five books, were authoritative. Uh, they really were not looking for a Messiah because, again, like this life is all that there is. They were very wealthy people. They felt like they, they uh, you know, had earned their right to be who they were. They were wealthy. They were kind of elitist. And we don't want anything to do with the rest of you normal people, even you Pharisees, which is why they hated each other so much. But they come to Jesus, all right? They're kind of like, we're going to take our swing at Jesus. We're going to get a crack at him, and we're going to go on this issue of resurrection because it's such a preposterous idea that when you die, you go somewhere else. And so they come at him with this, this question, but with a, a true Bible passage in mind, okay? So whether you only believe in the Pentateuch or not, they come at him with this question, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Where are the Sadducees getting that idea? They're getting it from Deuteronomy 25, a passage that we know talks about what we call leveret marriage, which is where a brother-in-law steps in to fulfill the responsibilities of their brother who died. So this is basically, in this, in this culture, the reason you would even have such a law in the Old Testament was family line was very important. What does a child do for the parents? If the brother dies, so there's this wife left, and she doesn't have any kids yet, she needs to have children to take care of her later in life. This is really what the whole book of Ruth hinges on, is that Ruth's gonna, or, you know, Naomi's going to die with no one to take care of her. And so there's these kinds of problems there. Well, this is a true passage in Deuteronomy 25, and there's also an allusion here to Genesis 38. But the Sadducees take this idea that there should be someone to you know, raise up offspring, have children for that wife, and they take it to a different level. And they throw out this preposterous idea of this woman marries a guy, he dies, they didn't have any kids, so now somebody else you know, from the family, has to try and help her have children. So she marries the next brother. And you get on down to the second and the third. I just have to ask, if you're the fifth or the sixth or the seventh of these brothers, are you not going to run for the hills and say, I'm going to go get married to somebody else real fast before it's my job to marry her? 
Because it's, it, I mean, it made me think of the uh, Drew Peterson story in Bolingbrook, what, 15 years or so ago, where he had three wives and they're all dead. Like, huh, wonder what happened there. So he's in jail. Surprise. So I guess I would ask the same question about this woman. But she has seven husbands, is what, uh, what these Sadducees tell Jesus. So, ha, now we've got you stuck, Jesus. So tell us, which of those is going to be her husband in the next life? Right? See, clearly there's no resurrection. That's what they're trying to get him to acknowledge. First, they just need to take like a logic class. Secondly, they need to take a Bible reading class. And third, they need to realize who they're messing with. And so Jesus responds by saying, okay, it's true that people in this age get married. But you're assuming some things that you probably shouldn't assume, is essentially what Jesus does in responding to this. He says, you're assuming that the next life is just like this life, that there's perfect continuity, right? That the game keeps being played with the same rules in the next life. And by the way, Jesus words this with the sons of this age versus those who are in the next age. He's saying there's discontinuity. There are things that are true in this life that are not true there. And secondly, there are things that are not true in this life that are true there. What are some things that are true in this life that are not true there? One is you get married in this life. You don't get married in the next life. For some of us, this is the best news I could possibly tell you. And for some of us as well, this is terrible news, right? Let's just put it this way. If you're in a terrible marriage right now, this is like, oh man, my life is so good all of a sudden. I'm no longer going to be bound to this worthless person that I'm married to. Hopefully that's not the way you think about your spouse. Let's assume in a terrible relationship, that's how you thought about your spouse. This is great news that you're not going to be married to this person anymore. Let's assume that you're in a really happy marriage. You love your spouse. Like you've been married for decades and you enjoy your life together. This is bad news. You want to be married to that person. And sometimes I just think like, what am I going to do in heaven when I see Clarissa? Do we just high five each other or what? I have no idea. But Jesus clearly teaches that there's no more need for marriage. And that, again, makes us ask the question, why was there marriage in the first place? And when you read the early chapters of the book of Genesis, you realize it's because there's a problem of loneliness. That problem will not exist in the new heavens and new earth. In other words, even before the fall, we ex- humanity experienced loneliness. That means that heaven's going to be even better than what life was like in the Garden of Eden. Why will that be? Because you will be with the Lord Himself. So that problem is taken care of. Why did God create marriage? Well, what did He tell Adam and Eve to do? Go have lots of children. That means be, that's what it means when He says, be fruitful and multiply. Why will you not need to be fruitful and multiply anymore? Because there's no death in heaven. Right? You've, you've died in this life. You've moved on to a world where there is no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. So that means you don't have to keep procreating because the human race will not die out as a result of death. And so Jesus basically takes this, this question and says, you guys don't even know what you're asking. The problem is going to be very you know, unimportant in the new world because there is no such thing as dying, because there is no such thing as marriage. And he gives these examples. So he says that those who attain to that age, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, will not be worried about 
death and marriage anymore, as in this silly story you guys are telling me about these seven people, these seven men who married this woman. But as you read that line, those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, does that raise a question in your mind? The question that should come to your mind when you read that line about those who are considered worthy to attain to that age is, how do I get considered to be considered worthy? Because I want to be in that age, right? I want good after I die, not bad. I want heaven, not hell. So how do I become worthy? How do I become considered worthy to be in that age? And notice Luke does not put an asterisk here or a footnote here, like see previous passages or see what I describe later or anything like that. He assumes you know, so he doesn't pause to clarify what Jesus meant by that. Who does Luke tell us attains to the resurrection of the just those who have put their faith in Christ alone. Those who demonstrate their repentant hearts by a fruit of repentance. This is what Luke 1 through 24 teaches. And Luke himself would go further and say, this is what Acts 1 through 28 teaches. That it is through faith and repentance that we attain to that age. And the way we know we have repentance is because you can see the fruits of repentance in someone's life. So Jesus responds to this question with like a logical answer, first of all. Like, hold on, you guys aren't even talking about the same thing here. There's this age and there's the next age, and we just need to be aware that there's not perfect continuity between the two of these. But then he also responds to this question with what we could call an exegetical argument instead of a logical argument. So in other words, he goes to the Bible. And he says, look, you guys want to talk about Moses because you believe in Moses? Let me talk to you about Moses. Did you know, Jesus might have said, if you were a little bit more sarcastic, That even Moses believed there was a resurrection? Let me show you where he does that. And it was the passage that Dan Aylar read for us today. What a coincidence. Just kidding. I told Dan to read that passage, okay? So, uh, in other words, even Moses, this one author of the Bible that you guys believe is true, believed there was a resurrection. How did Moses communicate that? By saying that God said, "I I am, not I was, But hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died, hundreds of years later, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he said will go on forever. In other words, God staked his nature, staked his character on the fact that there is a second world, that there is a better world that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were going to go to based on the fact that they believed God and it was counted to them as righteousness. So he argues with them saying, he's not, God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. The living like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And everybody there realized what he meant by that. Oh, even though at that point in human history, even at that point, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were just dust in the ground when God said that. If God could say that, that means that there is another world, that we are more than just a body. We are also a soul. We talked about this this even in Sunday school this morning, that we are embodied souls. We are souls encapsulated in a body. 
But not everybody believes that today. Did you know that? Like, there are plenty of people in the world who don't believe in a resurrection, don't believe in another world. Perhaps some of you guys have seen the documentary called Free Solo. It's on Disney+. Plus. Um, it's about this guy named Alex Honnold, who's from California, who wanted to scale El Capitan in Yosemite National Park without a rope. Sounds like a great idea. What could possibly go wrong? Well, lots of things, including him falling. And so, as the documentary was showing the people who were videotaping him do this climb using drones and all kinds of things, they were interacting more with the team surrounding Alex Honnold, who were not climbing, than with the guy actually doing the climb. Uh, And one of the things that they said was, I'm so worried that he's going to fall and it's going to be the end of his existence. And I was like, wow, that's a good sermon illustration right there. <laughs> like, thank you, Free Solo. They believed that this is it. Turns out that's what Alex Honnold believes as well, the guy who was actually doing the, doing the climbing. So maybe that's why they're friends. But all I'm saying is there are still people alive right now who, like the Sadducees, believe that there is no resurrection, that this life is all there is. And my question for you is, then what's the point? If this life is all there is, then nothing matters. If there is no resurrection, nothing matters. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 as well, which is the chapter in the New Testament on resurrection. If you want to you know, ask more questions about this, not that Paul gives us a ton of answers. He says we're going to have a resurrection body, but we don't really know what it's going to be like. It's going to be kind of like the acorn that turns into an oak tree. You're not, you wouldn't have expected that that little guy is going to turn into a tree hundreds of feet tall. So there's going to be differences. There's going to be things we don't understand. But still, 1 Corinthians 15 is the place to go. Even in that passage, Paul says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then we, if, or I should say, if there is no such thing as a resurrection, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Like, what a miserable life to act, to live your whole life thinking that there is another world and then to die and find out there isn't. You should be pitied. But Paul is arguing there certainly is another world. There certainly is a resurrection. If there is no resurrection, nothing matters. So I'm just going to tell you right now, live however you very well please. But if there is a resurrection, you need to live in a way that honors God. Live for the glory of God because everything matters if there's a resurrection. Your job matters. So show up and be the best employee in your company because you believe in the resurrection. Your relationships matter. So don't torch friendships for pointless, over, you know, petty issues. Your health matters. So take care of your body. You are an embodied soul. I'm saying that over and over again. What you eat and how you exercise and how you sleep, you know, making sure you get enough of those, of those essential elements, all are important because of the resurrection. Because we believe that there is another life. So that means that everything in this life matters because we will be raised. So Jesus rightly interprets Scripture about the resurrection. And notice that as he comes to the end of his argument here, first the logical argument and then the exegetical argument, the textual argument, they don't really have a response. They're like, wow, that was a good answer. You kind of put the Sadducees in their place. They don't really know how to respond to this. Good for you, Jesus. And this, even the Pharisees pat him on the back and congratulate him 
after just in the previous passage, being the ones who were themselves confounded by His answers. But Jesus demonstrates His authority by rightly interpreting Scripture. Here He rightly interprets Scripture about the resurrection, that there is another life. Secondly, in verses 41 through 44, He rightly interprets Scripture about Himself. We sang in a song last week called Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. "'Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord." Did you catch that when we sang that last week? That's coming from this passage, which itself is coming from Psalm 110. So earlier in our passage, excuse me, we have Deuteronomy 25, then we have Exodus 3, now we have Psalm 110, which I would say is one of the more important psalms in the book of Psalms only because it's quoted so many times. I believe it's the passage that's quoted the most from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And so David himself says in the book of Psalms, Jesus says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, until I show that you have authority and that all of your enemies are submitted to you. That's what that footstool line means, that everyone is under the authority of Christ. But how do we know that this is talking about Jesus? Well, it says the Lord, that's Yahweh, that's God, said to my Lord, that's David speaking in that psalm, who's David saying is my Lord? The Messiah. How do we know that David means this is the Messiah? If for no other reason, and I think there are other reasons, if for no other reason, because Jesus and the apostles over and over again tell us that's what it means. Okay, so here's an important principle for you as you read your Bible. The Old Testament means what the New Testament says it means. Let me say it again. The Old Testament means what the New Testament says it means. So in other words, if you're reading Psalm 110, you're not reading it quoted here in Luke 10. You're reading Psalm 110. You're saying, I wonder what that means, that the Lord said to my Lord. I wonder what that means. If nothing else, you can go to the New Testament and see, oh, this is clearly talking, the my Lord there is the Messiah, because Jesus and the apostles told me that that's the case. And this question that Jesus asks them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Well, how do we know that the Messiah is going to be a son of David? Because of passages like 2 Samuel 7.14, and it's parallel passage, 1 Chronicles 17, that we looked at on New Year's Day. Because of passages like Psalm 89, 3 and 4, or Isaiah 9, verse 7, or Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24, or Hosea 3, 5, and I could keep going. So he is the son of David. We know that. And these Pharisees that he's talking to here, this other group of religious leaders of the day, they're in the temple. They knew that the Messiah was going to be the son of David because they knew those passages that I just read off. But how can they say that the Messiah, the Christ, is David's son? And Jesus says, he's also his Lord. It makes no sense for the king of Israel, David, to say that there's someone higher than him if he's his son. How does that make sense? And what he's doing is making the Pharisees realize, oh, I have never really asked that question before. I've never really figured out that these passages should be read together. Basically, that The Messiah is the son of David, but is also the Lord of David, is also the king of kings higher than David. And so what Jesus is doing is he's rightly interpreting Scripture about himself. And again, we interpret the Bible the way we do because of the way that Jesus interpreted the Bible. He taught 
It was as if there's like a, a chain of command. Jesus at the top, hands it down to the apostles. This is how you should read the Bible. And then the apostles took it to us and said, this is how you read the Bible. And we take it to our children and our neighbors and our friends and our loved ones. We say, this is how you read the Bible. We follow their lead. We read with their worldview. And this is essentially where we're going to close today is just with the fact that a passage like this makes us ask questions about what the Bible is in the first place, about what is true. And what I would say is the Bible is the true story about where the world came from and how it ends and everything in between those two points. If over here you have the question of where did we come from, and over here you have where does the world end? Does it happen because there's kind of like the opposite of a big bang somehow? Does it end because the world gets so hot we all die out? What's the end? The Bible tells us the true story of where it came from, where it ends, and all the important stuff that happens in between. That's a worldview. You have a worldview. Everyone you meet has a worldview. It's a non-negotiable part of, of living as a human. And we here at Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church want to convince you to have the worldview that Jesus and the apostles had, that the biblical authors had. Your worldview affects how you view everything from education to animal rights to abortion or euthanasia, you know, life at the, killing people at the beginning of life or killing people at the end of life. Your worldview affects all of those and hundreds of other important matters. And the way you develop the worldview of the Bible is by reading the Bible the way that Jesus did, interpreting the Bible the way that Jesus did. The way that Jesus interprets Scripture in this passage surely would have angered the religious leaders. Ultimately, they're trying to get him to say something that basically makes him stick his foot in his mouth and makes him look like a fool so that then they can prove, see, he's not really the Messiah because he said this dumb thing. And instead, what he does over and over again with any trick question they brought his way is prove, I am the true king. I am the true Messiah. So follow me. That's what Jesus was telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the onlookers. And you find out from reading this, this passage and the parallel passages, the crowd was in awe of him. The crowd was thrilled with what he was saying. He was saying, follow me, trust in me, what I'm selling, you can buy. You can take it to the bank that I'm telling you the truth every single time I open my mouth. When they couldn't get him to say something ridiculous, they started looking for other measures. They started looking for other options of how to get him out of Jerusalem. And it would ultimately lead to them killing him for our sins so that we could be truly called the sons of God and truly be called the sons of resurrection, so that we too could be resurrected to a true and better world where we will live, where there is no dying and no more sorrow and no more sin. And that's the world that you want. That's the world you crave, is a world where you don't have animosity between you and anyone you love, where you don't have tears of sorrow, that's the world that Jesus gives us because he is the God of the living. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we want to take you at your word. Often we need your, every day, we need your grace to do that. So we ask that you would give us wisdom and understanding of your word. That we would 
Be compelled by the truthfulness of everything that you said in your word. And that it would affect the way that we view our lives and our relationships and our jobs. That it would affect the way that we tell other people about what is true in the world. That it would cause us to love you and worship you and follow you all the days of our lives in anticipation of the days that are to come in eternity. In Christ's name, amen.